Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means you might hear two hosts. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's September 4th. The Peekskill riots ended on this day in 1949. This was a series of ongoing violence, but it had two key moments, effectively two different riots that are connected together. The first one followed an open-air concert that was scheduled in Peekskill, New York, on August 27th of 1949. To be there were Paul Robeson, Woody Guthrie, Lee Hayes, and Pete Seeger. They were raising money for the Civil Rights Congress. Actor, singer, and activist Paul Robeson had really been outspoken on the issue of racism and for civil rights and against fascism. And in the months leading up to this planned appearance, he had made a statement at the Paris Peace Conference about being determined to fight for peace and not wishing to fight the Soviet Union. But what was reported as what he had said, was something else entirely, and something that is still attributed to him, which was, quote, it is unthinkable that the Negro people of America or elsewhere would be drawn into war with the Soviet Union. People took this statement to mean that Paul Robeson was pro-Soviet Union and that all Black people were pro-Soviet Union. It became a talking point that he was a communist and that he was anti-American and that he was loyal to the USSR. Even though he had appeared in Peekskill three summers in a row before 1949, this Paris Peace Conference statement and the way it was reported really solidified in people's minds that this should not be allowed. Reporting in the Evening Star in Peekskill also made it clear that Robeson was to be considered a communist and a subversive. There was a lot of press leading up to this appearance about how it should not be allowed to happen. So the night of the concert, a mob tried to block the area. They yelled white supremacist slogans. They burned a cross, and they tried to set the picnic area at the park where this was happening on fire. Meanwhile, the performance tried to go on. The people in attendance were largely Black and Jewish, and people who were attending the concert linked their arms up to try to keep the mob away from the concert site. The police eventually arrived and dispersed everyone, and there were no fatalities, but there were a lot of injuries, and the concert had to be rescheduled for September 4th. Leading up to that rescheduled concert, the American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wars planned a protest. The Joint Veterans Council held a meeting to discuss a plan for what to do, and organizations like the Chamber of Commerce and the JCs publicly issued statements opposing the rescheduled concert. There were also labor and civil rights organizations on the other side who supported the performance and who criticized the reporting in the Evening Star for stoking violence and racist sentiments. Trade unions also made a plan to try to defend the concert site. And the concert came on September 4th. It started with classical music and then folk music by those original performers and Paul Robeson. After the concert, law enforcement routed the people who had been there down a back road where men and boys were waiting to throw rocks and bricks at their cars. Cars were overturned. Windows were smashed. There were bus drivers who fled the scene and left their passengers stranded in this melee. Later on, it was alleged that the Ku Klux Klan was involved with this. There was an active chapter of the Ku Klux Klan near Peekskill, 
and that police had coordinated with the assailants by radio. Racism, anti-Semitism, and anti-communist sentiments were all tied up in this. This was a precursor to the second Red Scare and Joseph McCarthy's investigation of communist infiltration into the government. In 1950, the U.S. State Department refused to renew Robeson's passport so that he could no longer travel internationally for performances, and then he was blacklisted within the industry for his views and for his civil rights work. He died in 1976 of a stroke. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat for her research work today on this episode. And thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And tomorrow we'll have a word with a very clear meaning. But that meaning has shifted a lot over the years. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was September 4th, 1882. Pearl Street Station, the first commercial central power plant in the United States, started generating electricity. Building on the work of other inventors, Edison created an incandescent lighting system. He had already constructed experimental power installations. He used a dynamo, now known as a generator, to deliver power to each of these small installations. But incandescent lighting in homes and indoors was becoming more popular, and a substantial source of power was needed. In 1880, the same year he received the patent for his incandescent lamp, Thomas Edison established the Edison Electric Illuminating Company of New York to build power stations in New York City. Edison decided to build the first permanent central power stations for supplying incandescent lighting in New York's financial district in Lower Manhattan. Construction of the station began in 1881. The mechanical and electrical part of the plant was at 257 Pearl Street. Since the building was constructed for commercial use, the structure had to be strengthened to hold all of the necessary equipment. The flooring was replaced with a floor of girders supported by columns. The building used for storage, sleeping, and offices was at 255 Pearl Street. Each building had four floors. Edison chose this location because it provided a good mix of commercial and residential business and was home to many major newspapers. It was also close to the Western Union Telegraphy Company and City Hall. The company paid around $300,000 to buy the properties and build the station and distribution system. Constructing the network of wires and conduits that delivered energy to customers was one of the most expensive parts of the project. After administrative expenses, canvassing, and patent license fees, the cost came to about $500,000. Four 240-horsepower Babcock and Wilcox boilers were in the basement of 257 Pearl Street. Six engine and dynamo assemblies were on the floor above that. The dynamos were driven by reciprocating steam engines supplied by coal-fired boilers. Each assembly weighed about 30 tons and was rated for around 1,200 lamps. 
The third floor housed wooden frames wrapped with copper wire resistances that were used for manually regulating the dynamo fields. The fourth floor was home to a thousand lamps that were used to test dynamos that needed inspection or repair. The first engine and generator assembly was tested on July 5th, 1882. The station went into service on September 4th. Pearl Street Station used direct current, which is an electric current that flows in one direction. With alternating current, on the other hand, the electric current changes direction periodically. Customers were not charged for current until 1883, after the system for accurately recording the flow of current had proven reliable. The first bill was to the Ansonia Brass and Copper Company for $50.44. The New York Times offices were one of Edison's first customers. Pearl Street Station did not become profitable until 1884. Other direct current, low voltage, central station electric systems were later built around New York City. In January of 1890, a fire destroyed some of the station, but it was back up and running not long after and stayed in operation until 1894. Though Edison defended the use of direct current, the rest of the world was gravitating toward alternating current. By the time Pearl Street Station shut down, other power plants had been designed to service larger areas. Edison sold the buildings and they were later torn down. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there's something that I missed in an episode, you can share it on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.